Hello and welcome back to part two of the Behind the Laughs Comedy Podcast, where today we were interviewing Scotty Papakiri. My name is Andrew Prenti and I am joined by my dad, Mike. So you work for free all the way, all the way down there. You just worked for free, just dropped in at guest spots here and there. Yeah, you know, I worked for free a lot because I basically I just wanted to get into the club. Right. And then to deal with every club, I said, I will feature for you if you consider headlining me based on the work I do. So I got about five clubs, you know, in the, uh, around the country that would headline me, and two of them were big-time clubs. But what I didn't realize is, as a feature act, it's the easiest spot in the world. Let's explain that to people who know what it is. There's an MC, the first guy, a feature act, does about 25, 30 minutes. Then the headliner does between 40 and an hour. Uh, as the feature act, I would kiss the easiest spot. And all of a sudden now I'm headlining. And I'll tell you what, things aren't so funny after the check drops. <laughs> you know? And, and I never had to deal with that, you know? And uh, I was able to deal with it. You know, and, and I had a solid act, but in 97, I got a, a morning radio show in Hartford, Connecticut, and that was when my career took off. I was making $300,000 a year, um, making 20000 cash a show, and um, that was like once a month from the radio. The radio show is very popular. I remember when I went to... This is UPS. This is how loud this is. This is Lakeworth. I went to to be interviewed for the show. The guy hired me before I even went on the air. And the line where he hired me, he goes, our target audience is 18 to 34-year-old females. And I said, so is mine. That one line, he hired me uh, uh, four days a week. My my choice, which four days, 35000 a year. And I just went on the road every weekend, and uh, then they upped it to fifty thousand. Okay, Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah Scott. I, I want to just I want to get this a little clear in my mind. So you're doing these. I like the fact that you're calling all these guys. You're getting a gig, let's say, in Carolina for seven hundred, and you were doing guest spots along the way. But you had a number of clubs that started headlining you after that because you were performing at all the clubs, right? Yeah. What I had to do was I got this club called the Comedy Cafe in Milwaukee. And it, uh, it's a top club. You know, Seinfeld, Ray Romano, I mean, everybody's played there. So why I'm telling you this is when people are like, why should I headline you? And I'm like, I headline the Comedy Cafe on the wall. Uh, okay, so... And they were like, real? You all, know? You need, all, all you need is one uh, headlining gig and you could sell it. So I just want to know, so how did you go from doing the road work to the radio station? I'm not clear how that happened. Oh, that's a great question. You know, my father, he didn't like my stand-up, but he liked my radio. What do you mean your dad liked radio? When did your dad hear you on the radio? I used to, I had my own show on WGBB. Have you heard of that station? No, what, is that in college, when you were in college? No, it's a Long Island station. It's the, it's the sister station of BAB. <sighs> so what it was, was at 1240 AM, WGBB. I used to uh, pay $125 an hour um, to do the show, and I used to sell advertising and stuff. But the point is, my father heard me on that. He really, really liked it. So I used to, this guy from Comedy Central, 
he used to um, hire me to go all the way to Manhattan and do like a half hour on visiting radio shows. And he would give me money for my train ticket in the cab, just moderate stuff. But I started getting really good at radio. And I remember my father saying, he was like, why do you do these things? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why do you go all the way to Manhattan to do a radio show that no one's listening to? And I said, Dad, I'm getting really, really good at this. And he's like, really? I go, yeah, it's not about who's listening to me. I'm getting good. So he listened to me and he liked it. So the point I'm making is because I had done all these shows, a gentleman from Hartford, Connecticut, called the guy who booked me to come into Manhattan. And he said, listen, I'm looking for a young guy who's edgy, and he referred me, and that's how I got right. to see show. You see, Scott, see what I'm looking at, which I don't think you even realize, see, you were smart enough, you paid to be on the radio for an hour, basically, right? You're paying this person to be on the radio. I did, yeah. yeah. which is smart, because it's giving you exposure, you can promote your comedy shows, and so you're paying to be on the radio, and that ends up getting you the Hartford gig, correct? Yeah, and the fun thing was, guys, I was making money off the GBB show. I was going around selling advertising and, you know, I, I was actually making money. But, yeah, it's the way comedy and entertainment works is you've got to keep going. Like I did about 200 auditions before I got to the NFL tour. You just keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And eventually something's going to lead to something. If you have talent. So what were you doing on the Long Island radio state? I, obviously, you had advertisers help pay. What, what were you doing? Are you just telling jokes? What were you doing? So it was me and a co-host. We did songs, impressions. We we talked about current events. Uh, we planned the show. We, we were really into it. It was just, we, we were very current. We talked about current events. So this events. is a weekly show? Yeah, it was. Um, once a week. It was funny because it was once a week and it was on Monday nights. And the funniest part about it was it was when the Knicks and the Rangers both went to the finals, and the only night the Knicks and Rangers didn't play was Monday, Monday night. That's right. No because, sports on. That's right. Yeah, because if the Knicks were on on Monday, I honestly wouldn't have done the show. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and so the Hartford job, what, what was it? What, it was a morning show. They put you on, right? Yeah, it was called Kiss in the Morning with Ross, Courtney, and Scott. Now, Ross Britton was a legend. He was on the Z Morning Zoo. I remember. Courtney was the female. Now, on most radio shows, um, there's a woman on the show, and this is what her role is. Scott, stop it. Just the typical... Not, I'm not saying about women, but women on radio were typically not very talented, but this young lady, Courtney, she was something else. We had such a chemistry. You know, we pretended we didn't like each other, um, and it was very good for the radio. Okay, and you were at the Connecticut station for three years? I started out uh 97. I was there three and a half years total, but, you know, the first show I did that made money, we set up 200 chairs for the show, and I was charging $15 at the door, and 1,100 people came. I made over $15,000 in one night. And that's how I made the money. My salary was over a hundred thousand, but I made much more money doing stand up. Well, because you're promoting your own shows for free. How great is that? Yeah, well the thing was when I first started doing the shows, people were like, I don't understand why 
I would book you if you're taking all the money at the door. And I said, because I'm giving you free advertising on the radio. And that's what worked. So were you, were you headlining all these shows? Yeah, it's funny because um, I used to do an hour and I hired like Rich Voss to open for me, Lisa Lampanelli. You know, this was a different time. Like they're all big now. But I used to get big time people to open up for me. And I would pay them well. I'd give them a thousand. That's good pay. That's yeah. That. That's good. That's, that's great pay. Even today, that's good pay. What I really wanted to do, fellas, it wasn't about that I needed them or needed to pay them that much. I wanted them for one night to experience what it's like to be me. <laughs> Everyone should experience what it's like to be you. Oh, that's funny. But when I when these guys would come up and see what happened, they're like, "You've got." thousand people here to see you 500 one show 500 the next they're like how much are you making i said twenty thousand dollars right and one guy goes this is the funniest part of how i did this i said to this guy he goes okay okay well we'll cut your check i said oh whoa 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 no i get paid in cash the guy goes you want me to give you twenty thousand cash i said uh yes i do and he goes, well, how am I supposed to make that money? I go, well, I sold the ticket. That's where the money is, you know. And I used to, I used to make two grand in merchandise. I had five security guards with me. Women used to line up, twelve to fifteen women after the show, for the right to blank. And I'm not going to go further. What's the largest crowd you ever performed in front of? One of those crowds? No. Uh, I opened up for Sugar Ray at Foxwoods. Um, uh, I think that was it was about five thousand. But the biggest five thousand really? Before I, I hosted the Stone Temple Pilots Aerosmith concert. There was twenty thousand people there. Um, uh, I didn't get on TV, but I was the host, and it was the funniest thing because I live in the real world. You know what I mean? And they asked me, they said, do you want to do stand-up before the act? And I went, do I have to? <laughs> and they said, no. So I said, no. You know what I mean? Because uh, they're not there to see me. And, you know, it didn't affect the money I was getting. But <laughs> the biggest thing that happened to me was uh, I did a show in Quinnipiac College in 97 with Norm McDonald. You guys familiar yes. with him? Norm's a friend of mine. We had done an MTV uh, TV show together. And so me and Norm, I'm doing 30 minutes. Norm's doing an hour. Uh, I go up, I do my 30 minutes. Norm goes up, and for some reason, he doesn't say anything. And, you know, people started throwing things at him. And, you know, this lady comes up to me, and she says, do you want to go back up there? And I said, not really. <laughs> you know? And I said, if, I'll do a half hour if you give me $5,000 more. And she said, okay. Really? Wow. Signed a contract napkin. So I went up, did another half hour. Um, and what happened was, it, it was a big story uh, in the media. What happened to Norm? What happened to Norm? So I was able to parlay that into getting on the Howard Stern show as a guest um, to talk about what happened to Norm. You know, And I had to be very careful because... Howard is a huge Norm fan, and at one point I pissed Howard off. He goes, what happened, Scott? And I said, well, he just couldn't follow me. <laughs> and Howard's like, 
He was like, are you kidding me? I said, wait, wait, Howard, I, I, I love Norm. I'm talking about stylistically. I said, I'm a high-energy act. Norm is low-energy, but the funniest part, fellas, when I went up there for the second time, I did 15 minutes of Norm's act. Are you kidding me? Wow. I do a pretty decent Norm impression, and I know his act. So I was like, you ever, uh, you ever dream and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. You wake up and uh, you try to redream it, you know? Never, uh, never really turns out the way you, you planned it, you know? Like, uh, in my dream, I was uh, in a pool with Christy Brinkley. And uh, I, I redreamed it, and I was shooting pool with David Brinkley. You know, like, I had all the, you know, because I could do Dennis Miller's act. I could do... Norm, and not that my norm well, is. Scott, what happened? Did, great he, did he say anything at all? I want to know about the bomb. I want to hear more about it. What happened? What happened was, I know Norm very well, and we got to be friends because it was March Madness, and we were on a flight together to go do a show for MTV. And I said, Norm, Princeton's going to beat UCLA. And he's like, You got to be kidding me. There's not a chance. So Princeton beat UCLA, and that's how he remembered me. So he's like, hey, hey, look, the Princeton guy, <laughs> you know? And uh, he's a huge gambler, and he's a huge Knicks fan. So am I. I mean, the Knicks were my life. So before the show, we were watching a New York Knicks playoff game where they're playing the Miami Heat. He had a lot of money on the game, fellas. So the Knicks were down 30 points in the first half. <laughs> it was a beating. And Norm was very, he was furious. I go, how much you have on this game? And he goes, well, more than I'm making on the show. <laughs> he was making $15,000. Oh, wow, it's good money. It was a huge, it was like 4,000 kids. And they knew who I was from my radio show. They were excited. They loved Norm. They loved me. And uh, But the best part was, now I did the Howard Stern show. I had a real credit. And I was able to use that. What happened to Norman McDonald when he got on stage? Did he talk? Did he just bomb in five minutes and leave the stage? What happened? He wasn't drunk. Like, Howard was like, was he drunk? I'm like, he wasn't drunk. He's like, then what happened? I go, look, all I can tell you is I know he had like 20 grand on the Knicks. The Knicks, were, it, it was over before it started. You know, he wasn't on drugs. He wasn't drunk. I just think, I don't know what happened to him, but. You know, he just went up there and he refused to talk. He never said. Oh, you know, so Scott, Scott, I just want to be clear. He never said a word. Is that correct? He said one sentence. He goes, "I'm going to uh, stand up here for an hour, and then my fat ass is going to get paid." Is that what? That's is all that he what said. he said? What? That's all he said. He was up He was on stage for 15 minutes. He just. Never said a word. He just stood there in silence. Was that maybe that's some type of market? Oh, that's weird. I never that's heard strange, that story, Scott. Yeah. The first five minutes, he was getting laughed. Just standing. <laughs> right, up right, there. right. I could imagine that. Actually, people thinking it's funny. And then when the, they were throwing things at him, <laughs> one guy kicked at him on the stage. Uh, the funniest part was I was represented by Omnipop at that time, which is in Hicksville. It just so happened my agent Simon Hopkins, my college agent. He happened to be there. He was never at a show before that or after that. So when the time came and I said, look, I'm, if you give me $5,000, I'll do it. She said, I'll do it. And Simon is the guy. He goes, he had an English accent. He goes, we'll just write a contract on the napkin. <laughs> and, and 
that was how we did it. So, so, so you, you know, know what's weird, Scott? Like, that doesn't even sound like a bomb to me because he wasn't even trying. Like, yeah. what's the worst bomb you ever saw? Oh. Do you have something that just sticks out in your mind that's so brutal that you can't forget it? I, I have. I, it would have to be me. Um, I used to die. Like, I used to work this club. At the end of my career, I only had one account left because of all the drinking and... You know, I had a I had an account in the Poconos where I would do uh, two different resorts in a weekend, and I used to die. I mean, I used to die more than I would do well. And they told me when they booked me, they said, "Look, we don't care if you get a single laugh. Just don't offend anybody and do exactly forty five minutes." The the worst bombs I ever saw were my bombs in the Poconos. They they were horrific. I felt bad for me, <laughs> and I was me. Well, like, what was happening? Were you talking, telling jokes, and they weren't responding? Were they just talking while you were performing? What, what was happening? What happened to me was I got so sick of being funny that I used to bomb on purpose. Oh, I don't believe that. Uh, I swear to God, I used to do it. Not all the time. Only when I could get away with it. Um, but I remember there was a band called Group Du Jour, and we used to work together in the Poconos. And I, I heard them say this one night. Guys, he's bombing. They would only watch me when I bombed. <laughs> they wouldn't watch me when I did one. Because I I had a great way of bombing. The first thing I would do, I'd look at a guy in the crowd, and I'd go, if I'm going down, you're going down with me. <laughs> I would hold the crowd hopping. So, Scott, when you to this day, uh, how nervous do you get going on stage on a scale of 1 to 10? It depends on the show. It depends on whether I'm on drugs or alcohol okay. or both. It's a, like I was nervous before I did this, and I'll tell you why. I really care about you guys, and what really helped was I realized that there was nothing I could do to prepare for the show that I've already done it. It's just an interview, but I used to get nervous a lot, um, maybe, uh, maybe an eight. On a lot of shows. On a scale, on a scale um, of one to ten, you were an eight in terms of nervousness, right? Yeah, to get nervous. But the the thing is, as soon as I would go on stage, it would go away. Like as soon as I went up there, and I used to sit off stage beforehand, and I used to think to myself, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. I, every time, I can't do this. And then two things would happen. It wasn't me. God would give me the strength to do it. And it was my character. It wasn't me. Like, when I'm on Facebook, it's a character. And a lot of times people are like, how can you say the things you say? Because it's a character. So if it was me, like, now I could do it. But the character of me, you know, was the guy that made it happen. So would you say the amount of experience in comedy has nothing to do with nervousness levels? I, You know what it is? It's a great question. I only speak about myself, so I think I got more nervous later in my career than I did in the beginning because in the beginning, nobody cared. I was just a guy doing 10 minutes, but when you're the headliner, especially when the feature act is bombing, I didn't mind following a great feature. It was no problem to me. I used to get very nervous when the feature act was not doing well, very nervous. Okay, so it also depends on what's happening before you get up there, your level of nervousness, right? Yeah, it also depends on, I mean, I did so many shows all across the country 
it took me a long time, fellas, to realize I used to drive to shows and I would get out of my car and walk on stage. I mean, I was that late to the show. That used to get me very nervous when, you know, I didn't even know if I was going to get there. So one thing that helped me in my career was I used to leave, I used to get to these shows five hours early. I, I, that helped a lot. But that would add to my nervousness because now I got five yep. hours. I'm, I'm at a club. Uh, what are, how many times can I eat chicken fingers? You know what I mean? So, yeah, I got nervous a lot. I still, uh, I still do. When we do our shows, you know, I get, I get nervous. But what I've learned in my career is I don't write material anymore. I write words. And I don't – like the Chinese guy that rocks the math test and you're reading – you know, your math book on the way in, you even know it by now or you don't. And that's how it is with my act. I, I know, I know it works as long as I stop thinking about it. You know, I was telling Andrew just recently in one of our gigs, my level of nervousness has nothing to do with how I'm going to do on stage. I could feel not too nervous and not do well, or I could feel like a nine out of 10 and just have a killer set. There's like no correlation yeah. whatsoever. It's funny you say that because I liken it to, I read the David Cohn book. It's called Full Count. And um, it's the same thing with starting pitchers. They will be, wow, I feel really good when they're warming right. up and they'll get lit up. Yep. And then they'll have times where they're like, I got nothing and pitch a no-hitter. It's the same vibe as that. And that is whether you're nervous or not, it doesn't really have anything to do with your actual performance unless the nervousness causes me to stutter or look nervous as soon as i go on stage i'm not nervous you know i i, I would say i'm not nervous i just need one laugh i just need one laugh and i'm on my way but i need to i need that first laugh i think everyone needs to hear that first laugh absolutely again it's like you don't have to read that david cohn book it's like the first yep. strike okay yeah yeah i'm getting into this you know um yeah but for myself it's once I get going, man, I just get going. And I, and I really, you know, that's the, that's the whole thing about it. And you guys both know, cause, cause you do a lot of stand up. is there's nothing like that feeling when it's going well. And when everything you do is working, it, it's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So let's, that's a great point. So let's talk about that. When you're having a killer, unbelievable set, is there anything better than that? Um, no. No, absolutely. It, it, it's, 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 it. If I'm having a killer set in front of thirteen people at an Applebee's, <laughs> um, it's when I'm when I'm expected to deliver, and I deliver. But something Rich Voss taught me is he would be killing. We did a lot of gigs together. He would be killing, and he would purposely not bomb, but he would he would slow it down. Bring it down a notch. So he yeah. came up. Yeah, so I, I said, Rich, what, why did you do that? And he goes, look, Scott, it's like a heart, heart rate, okay? If it's just flat, if you're killing the whole time, you've got to slow it down. And that was a great lesson. Yeah, I see Keith Anthony do that a lot when he performs. He's killing on something, then he'll get real quiet for like 10, 15 seconds, and he brings him back down again. So if you're... so. What do you do to perform when you're on stage? Let's say it's Monday and you got to perform on Saturday. Do you not think about it until Friday? How do you mentally, you know, prepare for a show that's on Saturday and now it's Monday? 
one thing I did was I always flew to my road gig the, uh, a day early, and I would pay for my own hotel if I had to. But if I was, uh, if it was a Monday and the show was on Saturday, if I was on the road, what I like to do is I like to walk around uh, where the club is, not drive around, walk around, get the vibe of the people, maybe make a joke about a certain restaurant. But what I really did was I just I just lived my life. I, I um. I didn't really think about it because what am I going to do? Well, you know well, what I mean? When I, did you start thinking about it? See, that's what I'm asking too. Like I have a gig on, let's say a Saturday night, it's Monday. I'm not, I don't think about it too much. As the days get closer, I start thinking about it more. Well, the day of a show, it's different now, but for 20 years, it was a structured day. I would think about it all day. I would plan my entire day around it. I would eat at a certain time. So I wouldn't have to eat at the club right. and I wouldn't be right. tired take a nap. Um, I would walk for an hour. Uh, if they had a pool in the hotel, I would swim. Um, I had a real ritual on the days that I performed, thinking about the show all day long, even if I'm not thinking about it, because everything I'm doing is for the yes. show. Well, what about now? What do you do differently now? Now, um, I don't think about it even when I'm doing it. <laughs> That's good. That's good. So I like when we did that show for the Afri it was an all African American crowd and it was us. I didn't think of, I didn't think to myself I don't know if I could do this. I didn't think that, and I didn't think what should I do either. I I pray to God. I surrender to God and I just go up and you know whatever. Happens. But one thing that helps me in my act is I I can sing. So when the songs are working, I sing. When the act is working, I use the act. If the both are working, I do both. So, uh, you know, I could do impressions. So I have a lot of versatility because, you know, not everybody wants to hear stand-up. You know, a lot of people are into songs and impressions. Yep, those those are mm -hmm. those are layups a lot of the times. Oh, yeah. You know, the thing about, you know, I remember I met Frank Caliendo. He uh, opened up for me when I was in Milwaukee. Am I allowed to curse on this show? You know, we haven't decided yet. We might either bleep it out or leave it in. We haven't decided. Okay, it's not a bad one, but this was the story. So so it's me and Frank. You know, we do the whole, uh, it's in Milwaukee. Frank's opening up for me. And, you know, we didn't like each other from the get-go because, you know, there was a radio show that was every Friday. And um, Frank wanted to do the show. And the headliner does the show. The feature act doesn't do it. So he comes up to me. He says, listen, the club is okay with me doing the radio show. Is it okay if I do it? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and he's like, why? I said, look, Ben. I said, I featured here for five years. No one ever let me do the radio show. So you cannot do the radio <laughs> show. He was furious. <laughs> um, and, and the best part was, because that was what it was like on the road. Like, I did the Comedy Cafe in Milwaukee. There was a headliner room, okay? It was a beautiful room. There was a feature act room. It was okay. And the MC slept in the closet. You know what I mean? So, you know, we had this one conversation that was really good. I go, Frank, you are going to do very well in this business. And he goes, really? Why? And I go, A, because you do impressions. And B, because you're an asshole. So he goes, er, he goes, well, you're an asshole. And I go, exactly. And I'm headlining. 
you know. So we had a funny conversation, but uh, yeah, the point I used to love doing radio. They used to have radio shows. You could promote the shows on radio. I love that. So, so what do you think about the when you watch other comics? Do you think oh, this guy stinks? Like, are you like especially like before you get on? I'm not, I'm not talking about me and Andrew. Can you actually watch? people before you get on or you just you got you can't even do it when people say what do you think of this comic i say two words i don't uh i had a strict policy with keith our mutual friend i said um listen whenever i do a show for you and i need to go somewhere and be left alone and i need to never see a single minute of myself uh and it's because I don't like watching other comedians because they're not funny, and it bothers me. Um, okay, so that's so, what I was. Gonna, that's what I was asking. That's what I kind of asked it around the way. So you you like you don't like to go watch comedy live because there's just too many bad comedians, generally speaking. I um, yeah, you know, comedians. It, it's it's so sad. You know, a guy will do, you know, thirteen minutes at an Applebee's on a Thursday night, and he thinks he's a comedian. You know, um, I, I just don't really find comedians to be funny. I, the comedians that would work with me, it's like I say to people, you know, do I know what women want? No, I know what women that I dated want. So the point is, the guys, are you kidding me? I listen to comedy all day. I listen to David Tell, Bill Burr, Greg Giraldo. You guys. You know, um, but the guys that are working with me, oh my God! They're aside from you guys, they're horrible. Well, so what, what's the biggest mistake comics making? Like when you see comics, what, what's everybody doing wrong? Generally speaking, do you have anything you can comment on like that? I think a lot of comedians, what they do is they do their act in a mirror and they practice it. And and the problem I think comedians have is they expect to get laughs at certain spots. And the point is, the way to write an act is to not be so rigid. And you could get laughs on setups, on a facial expression. I think two things comedians, the mistakes they make. One is they're just not funny. Okay? And I wanted to play shortstop for the New York Yankees, but, you know, it just didn't work out for me. And the other thing is comedians try to impose their will. What do I mean? You go up... You could pretty much know, if you do a test joke, if they're going to go for that style of humor or not. And you need to regroup. You need versatility. You need to change it up. And I think the biggest mistake comedians make is they impose their will. They just keep doing the same stuff that's not working. I think a lot of comedians, like Evan Weiss, is a friend of ours, if he's listening, laughs actually throw Evan off. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of comedians like that. They're not used to laughs. You know what I mean? And, and the last thing, when you get a laugh, hold it. Let them laugh. That's like what Jay Leno always did. He never let them laugh. He was like, you know, uh, the coronavirus, you know, it's a virus that uh, people get, you know. And that is saying, of course, he would tell the punchline, he'd go, you know, the let the people laugh, man. 
Well, thank you so much for that, Scott. But I think we're pretty much out of time. I want to thank you again for joining us, and thank you for the people who are listening. And make sure to tune in next week when we interview Keith Godwin. Thank you, and good night. Sweet Caroline.